Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish life. We are Irish life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. With 2017 almost over, the first half of the show will reflect the big stories of this year. Everything from Ryanair's pilot woes to independent news and media's internal wrangling, the tracker mortgage scandal and RTE's continuing financial difficulties. In the second half of the programme, we'll have our business sports slot with Sport Ireland Chief Executive and former athlete John Tracy joining me and my co-host Michael O'Keefe in studio to discuss the big business issues on his agenda. Just to remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. But we'll start with our review of 2017. I was joined in studio initially by Cliff Taylor, Mark Paul and Laura Slattery of the Irish Times. Cliff Taylor, it's been another strong year for the Irish economy. Tell us why and what are the factors, what are the main factors behind that? Yeah, I guess if we hadn't spent uh, a lot, large part of the year obsessing about Brexit and President Trump, uh, maybe we m- might have paid a bit more attention to the extraordinary story that has been another really strong year for the Irish economy. Uh, well, you know, the media has been... Are we still the fastest growing in Europe? We are. Uh, certainly, if you look at the headline figures, uh, which are likely to show growth of around 7%, uh, even faster than China. Now, some people would say that the Irish figures are about as reliable yeah. as the Chinese figures. And we're starting to talk about nearing full employment again. We are indeed. I mean, what's the real rate of growth in the Irish economy? You know, if you look at things like consumer spending and, mm. and investment and you kind of try and strip out all the stuff that's going on with the multinationals, it's still around 5%. Mm. What's so not as strong as the headline figures. When the recovery started in 2012-2013, it was driven almost exclusively by exports. So that was the first thing to kind of get started in the Irish economy. Uh, Now, consumers were very slow to to join in. People had very heavy debts. People were worried about the future, were very scarred by what had happened, obviously, during the big recession. I guess people lost jobs as well. Absolutely. So the big change in the last year or so has been the domestic economy. So consumer spending, the big engine of the economy has started to recover, now growing at kind of 2 3%, maybe a bit faster, some analysts believe, when the figures are finally revived, uh, you know, the final figures come out for the year. And also investment. So investment has restarted. It's restarted in the construction industry, obviously, starting from an exceptionally low base, as we know. And it's also restarted across, you know, across manufacturing industry, across yeah. industry in general. Now, exports on, also, What about companies <coughs> putting investment on hold because of Brexit? Hasn't been a big factor so far. 
Um, investment has been reasonably strong across the whole economy. There, there are pluses and minuses. The FDI sector, of course, has been very strong. Uh, it, it appears that some of the companies in the domestic sector may have been holding off, may have been looking at their options, may have been looking overseas for, for some investments and even to the UK for some investments. But overall, this that has been, uh, that has been, you know, that hasn't been counted against the figures because the, the underlying figures have been so strong. Yeah, okay. A couple of quick things. One is Brexit. I mean, you know, we still don't know what the final deal is going to look yeah. like, but I suppose we've gotten some comfort at least that there will be a, a soft rather than a hard border, is that fair to say? Yeah, some comfort. I mean, I think the government did a really good job in getting the commitments written in uh, to the deal at the end of the year in terms of the border. But these are just really negotiating points because the hard talking is still to come and the contradictions which have been there from the start about the British approach to Brexit are still there. Nobody knows you know, what the answer is. And we still really aren't clear even what kind of uh, Brexit the British government is going going to come looking for. They only started to discuss it this week. So do we know much more about what Brexit will look like than we did at the start of the year? Not really. We have some some maybe uh, some positive factors on the border, but in terms of trade, tariffs, all those kind of things. Housing, still a big issue, still a big problem. A lot of homelessness out there, but we're still not building enough homes to meet demand and rents continue to rise and house prices continue to rise. They're at an annual rate of about 12%. Yeah, it is the defining issue, I think, of of this for for this government. Are the government on top of it? They don't give the impression of being entirely on top of it yet, Kieran. Obviously, a lot of of thinking and man hours has gone into it uh, in the various government departments. We have a plan. We have a plan. There are signs, in fairness, that house supply is starting to uh, starting to recover. Uh, but houses take time to build. Planning mm. takes time to come. We had upstream. figures this week, I think, suggesting that fifteen thousand new yeah. house starts uh, yeah. would happen in Ireland this yeah. year. That's not completions. That's it starts. Is, and and I, I guess the problem, looking back, is that figure fell to four or five thousand at the lowest during 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013. So we just have, we have a few years to catch up. And the problem is, in the meantime, we have this awful homeless problem, homelessness problem. Uh, we have the rental crisis. Uh, and in terms of young people trying to buy houses or people trying to get on what we used to call the housing ladder, mm. I think that phrase has fallen out of use, fortunately. They just can't afford. It's very difficult, increasingly they difficult can't afford, for can't afford to do it in Dublin. Yeah. So you know, you wouldn't call it. You, maybe you wouldn't call it a bubble on the style of what happened before the crisis, because that was driven by lending, and uh, that was driven by huge expansion of bank credit, an enormous expansion of bank credit, and prices just shooting up. But it is a very nasty housing squeeze, uh, real social and economic effects. And I suppose the two issues that will define this government's term: housing, perhaps housing, and yeah. Brexit. Laura Slattery, the. Uh, Economy is motoring along nicely, but it's not really feeding into the media sector, unfortunately, and particularly RTE. It's been a difficult year for RTE. They posted a very big loss for the previous year. Earlier this year, they've sold a big chunk of land in Montrose to Cairn Homes, uh, but they've also had to implement some redundancies as well. And the outlook isn't great. That's right. I mean, there's really two things happening. And the first, as, as, as you indicated there, it is quite a, quite an unusual uh, happening. In which case, the advertising market is is isn't keeping up with uh, economic growth. In fact, Why is that? expect that the advertising market will be in decline for this year. Um, you know, notwithstanding growth in, on, in digital advertising, which is going to, to Facebook and Google. Uh, as for why, I mean, a portion of it is to do about a quarter of the market here uh, is decided in, in London. And as those budgets are set in sterling, the uh, this I suppose the unexpected 
a continuation, I guess, of the weakness of sterling throughout the year, you know, all through the UK general election period and so on, uh, meant that the money that was coming into the Irish market once translated back to euro wasn't as much as, as they'd been hoping. So in other words, multinationals, they let's just say for argument's sake, they had a million pounds sterling to spend yeah. in the Irish market. They still have a million pounds sterling uh, to spend, but that buys you a lot less uh, euros. Yeah, and of course there has been some Brexit-related caution as well on the part of the big uh, companies like Unity. Lever and Procter and Gamble. Um, so then the other, you know, the as you mentioned RTE and their woes. I mean, I mean these sort of obviously they they predate this particular um, advertising uh, weakness, um, and it's to do with the competition essentially, uh, and also a, 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 a sluggishness, sluggishness in uh, collecting the uh, the license fee. So what's you know, the evasion right now? The evasion rate can be uh, it's in it's in the mid teens, but it's it's you hear everything from like thirteen to eighteen percent, depending yeah. on who's talking. Of course, RTE don't collect the no, that's on post. And on-cost. at the, the yeah. end of the year, towards the end of the year, uh, the Oireachtas Communications Committee, uh, which was tasked by the Minister for Communications, Dennis Nocton, with coming up with a series of recommendations, they recommended something that I know that you believe it would be sensible, which is that uh, the Revenue Commissioners yeah. should be tasked with collecting this, and that would be. Uh, a more sensible and effective way uh, uh, you know if you're going to have this license fee and if you are going to make all these people eligible for it then why wouldn't you have an, an effective collective mechanism and we've seen that would with help. property tax haven't we because property tax uh, collection rates are now about 98-99% whereas with the old household charge it was a much lower figure yeah, no, it absolutely would help. Now, Ampost has a sort of another view of it itself and it has its own potential. Okay. But hold on, RTE, RTE got, what, 107 million from Cairn Homes for selling about nine acres yes. at Montrose? I mean, that's a huge cash windfall. Any absolutely. media company in Ireland would love to get their hands on that kind of money. Absolutely, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a massive amount. What are they um, going to do with it? Well, um, I mean, just to go back to sort of its general problems, I mean, a lot of people would argue that it was it overstaffed. Uh, about 2,000 staff thereabouts? Yeah, about 2,000. And, and and in fact, that number had started creeping back up again. And um, so part of this Cairn Holmes money is effectively going to fund the redundancy scheme. So this time last year when I was talking to you and they hadn't put the, uh, that land on the market yet, um, but it was still pretty obvious that they were going to have to um, cut back on, on those staff numbers because the market and, and the licence fee situation just doesn't really support the, the 2,000 number that they had and um, so they've, they've, they've of course spent most of the year organising that redundancy scheme and um, uh, inviting applications now we understand they didn't get as many as they hoped they were hoping for 250-300 I don't think they made that marked mark but uh, you know eight, the first sort of eight year thereabouts have left the organisation organization, um, in the middle of December and there'll be another group leaving in the first quarter of 2018. Meanwhile, there's actually been a lot of change at the top of RTE in the 18 months since uh, Noel Curran left as Director General. And another f- four members of the executive board have also left, including most recently the commercial director, Willie O'Reilly. Um, so there's been a lot of change at the, the executive level within RTE. Um, but, and they probably feel now, if you're D Forbes, the new Director General, you probably feel now that it's the government's turn to maybe do something, that they, they've shown that they are in the process process of changing you know it's a bit of an ocean tanker so still a lot of Takes a long time uh, things to, to, to happen they're probably okay. waiting now for the government to say to come back and say uh, well we're going to implement some of these uh, recommendations Yeah Mark Paul this is a good segue uh, talking about media and executive changes to bring in independent news and media it really has been 
a momentous year and perhaps a calamitous year in, in some ways uh, for the company. Um, they had their proposed takeover of the uh, Celtic media regional newspapers that, that fell by the wayside. We had the ongoing spat, if you like, between Robert Pitt, the chief executive, and the chairman, Leslie Buckley. Uh, Pitt is now gone from INM, but Leslie Buckley is still there. And he's facing a legal case involving the state's corporate watchdog. Yeah, I mean, as we as we exit 2017, the most probably the most extraordinary corporate story is was the same story that that, that, that had that at, at the beginning of the year. And uh, Leslie Buckley is 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 at the centre now of an investigation by the state into how independent news and media is being run and being governed. Uh, it's essentially a corporate governance investigation. Um, uh, just to, I suppose to give a, a brief recap on the whole story, Robert Pitt, who was the chief executive, fell out with Leslie Buckley over a proposal to buy. New News Talk, which is owned by Dennis O'Brien, the main shareholder of Independent News and Media. That was in 2016. That was that was towards the end of 2016. That that story broke ground or broke sort of sort of broke through the surface. And um, throughout 2017, there was a standoff between Pitt and, um, and and Leslie Buckley, and people thought maybe when Robert Pitt leaves, that the story will end there. And um, Robert Pitt left earlier this year, towards the end of the summer. Um, but the, the the story is it's a, like a little bit of a runaway train at the moment because the state is now investigating independent news and media on foot of a whistleblower complaint by by by, uh, by, by Robert Pitt and uh, through the, in, in the guise of the office of the director of corporate enforcement the state's corporate watchdog effectively and this is this is this is in a sense out of control uh, you know it's it's not in the hands of independent news and media anymore the state is looking around and um, the, their investigation has moved beyond the original corporate um, governance issues, and it has uh, and it has moved on to um, allegations of a potential data breach at independent news and media. So, so the latest um, chapter in this story, effectively, is that um, the state's corporate watchdog has sought, sought a number of documents from Leslie Buckley, the chairman, as part of this investigation. Um, he had a look through forty thousand different documents. Um, he produced two hundred and seventy-five different documents, but he's claiming legal privilege over eleven of them. Now, of those 11 documents, um, one of them, the legal privilege on it, looks to be um, fairly cut and dried. It's communication between him and his lawyer. That's straight-up client privilege. Um, And even the ODCE has acknowledged that's straight-up client privilege. But the other 10 documents that he's claiming privilege over are uh, are communications between Leslie Buckley and a gentleman by the name of Derek Mizak, who is a cyber Mm. cyber security consultant. Now, remember... In, in, in the context of this, the ODCE is investigating a suspected potential data breach as part of its... Uh, as, 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 this as gets curiouser and curiouser. Curiouser and curiouser. Yeah, Derek Mizak is a, is, a, is a Polish engineer based in Ireland who who's, has sort of segued into the area of cybersecurity, cyber forensics. Um, he, he has a shareholding in a company called Resilient Defence, which, you know, it specialises in sweeping boardrooms for bugs and checking down uh, uh, air conditioning units for, uh, for listening devices and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and a- another guy who has figured in the documents that they're seeking from Leslie Buckley is a gentleman by the name of John Henry, who's a former Irish Army officer. Mm. Now, you spoke to him, didn't you? I spoke to John Henry very briefly. Um, um, I rang him up and I asked him about his connections to Leslie Buckley and he told me, um, after he listened to all my questions, he told me he didn't know who I was and he and he he, he ended the call fairly rapidly. But um, he's, a, he's, he's a former Irish Army officer who's been working for companies related to Dennis O'Brien for many years, providing personal security. Um, he works from... Um, um, for some, uh, primarily it seems in Haiti, where Digicel is one of Digicel's biggest markets. So Haiti is a fairly dangerous country, um, and companies associated with John Henry provide vehicle tracking services for Digicel, um, and they provide personal security, effectively bodyguard sort of services. So you kind of look at this story and you think, how does 
an ex-army officer who does bodyguard type services and uh, a, a guy who has an, an investment in a company that sweeps boardrooms for bugs. How does this all fit into independent mm-hmm. news and media? Mm-hmm. It's an extraordinary uh, story that has, you know, that has career throughout the entire year. And it looks like Leslie Buckley is going to spend his Christmas and possibly his New Year working on another affidavit for the court. It's due back in court. Um, this application over 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 the privilege over these documents is due back in court on January the 22nd uh, and, and Leslie Buckley has to file an affidavit before then so it's going to be a busy Christmas for him. Okay, we'll see how that plays out. Just to close out the media segment if you like, Cliff Taylor, I think uh, it would be remiss of us not to mention the fact that the Irish Times uh, has proposed to acquire mm. um, assets belonging to Landmark Media in Cork which owns the Irish Examiner newspaper, the Evening Echo, seven regional titles and has some interests in local radio. Yeah, uh, I guess there's been consolidation underway across the media sector for the last few years, circulation under pressure, advertising under pressure. Uh, we've seen it in the broadcast sector, we've seen it in the local media sector, and this is you know, a significant move, obviously, in the national media sector. Um, still uh, needs to be approved by get, to get competition approval and still needs to get ministerial approval. So that's, and you broadcasting know, authority, I think they have to give their Yeah, so you know, likely to take whatever, four, four or five months perhaps, so it'll be the middle of next year before... Uh, before the deal is actually finalised, I guess you could say, but right. uh, a big, uh, you know, a, b- a big move in the sector and a big consolidation in the sector between two of two of the three national national daily media the players. Two quality broadsheets in the in the market. Shall well we put, Kira. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see how that plays out. Now, Mark Paul and Laura Slattery have left us, but I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Joe Brennan and Dominic Coyle, and we're going to be talking about uh, banks and corporate tax and all sorts of other interesting issues. Joe Brennan, just today we had an update from the Central Bank of Ireland about this tracker mortgage issue. It's been rumbling and rumbling and rumbling for a few years now. Uh, We finally seem to be getting uh, somewhere towards the end of it all. And the Central Bank has said that, uh, so far at least, the number of uh, accounts affected in this uh, examination that they've been carrying out for a couple of years is 33,700 across all of the lenders and the redress uh, paid to date is 297 million euro. Are we any closer to getting to the end of this really? Well, the central bank uh, are saying today that they expect that the vast majority, they're, they're loath to get to a stage where they're saying that they have dealt with this and drawn a line underneath it, but they're saying the vast majority of cases they expect have been identified at this stage. Um, if you just look at the individual banks, well, just look at the overall figure of 33,700. Um, of that, 7,100 of those cases were identified and resolved back in 2010, which shows you how Predates long, this examination. Well, it just shows you how long this, this whole issue has been yeah. dragging on. Uh, so let's talk about let's talk about the, there's five lenders left in the market here. Let's let's start with AIB. Yeah, AIB has had the biggest jump uh, today. Um, they've come out basically. They have identified uh, almost an, an additional five thousand uh, cases um, as part of this. Isn't it extraordinary that after all this time they've still come up with another five thousand? Particularly for AIB, when you consider that AIB. Um, IPO'd or returned to the main markets in Dublin and yeah. London. You would have expected that they would have wrapped their arms And they took entirely. a big provision very early on, you know, relatively speaking to the million, other players. Yeah, um, the 190 million uh, provisions they made a few years ago uh, for this. So they were seen as being, you know, and, and, and they would have kind of cast themselves as uh, the, the, the poster child in terms of dealing with this whole issue. But you see now that the big kind of jump for AIB is they've got about 4,000 borrowers who were uh, never, and this is a, a category of borrower that um, 
that uh, my colleague Dominic would have written about in the past, a category of about 4,000 borrowers who never had a tracking mortgage. So they would have had a fixed mortgage and would have had an option uh, when they had a fixed a period of fixed rate to come off on that and go to a variable, another fixed period, or take up a tracking mm. mortgage. And by the time they came off the first uh, period of the mortgage, which okay. would have been a fixed period. Have they told us how much extra they're going to have to pay? Well, th- th- that's anything. the thing here. Is, I say this is going to be up for, uh, I say there, there'll be a fair bit of pushback against this. AIB for this particular category are saying that uh, the borrowers will have up to a year to make a decision to take on a tracker a tracker mortgage and they'll be given uh, €1,000 of compensation and €615 mm. uh, for uh, independent legal Dominic, advice. what kind of interest rates are they going to pay? Uh, well, the, part, part of the problem is that the, the argument these people had is that the interest rates they're going to pay now bear no resemblance whatsoever to what they would have been paying had they been offered a tracker back in 2006, 2007, when they should have been. Uh, the other interesting thing about this is that when I was writing about this back in September, both AIB and the central bank, with absolute assurance, said that this was absolutely not an issue, nor would it be an issue. So it's mm. amazing how we're, we're mm. five, seven years into this nearly, and they're still trying to get to grips with what is the baseline of the rules. Three months ago, mm. these guys were not in the mix at all. Now, all of a sudden, yeah. they've rolled over and they are in the mix. Well, clearly, you know, the lenders have a big case stance. We know all of that. I mean, they're kind of at the root of all this, aren't they, really? But uh, what about the Centre-Back of Ireland? What case do they have to answer in, in terms of how they've dealt with this issue? Uh, certainly, I mean, uh, they started this off uh, their own review. They told all the banks uh, back two years ago to start reviewing their, their books to find uh, issues, uh, cases uh, where uh, borrowers had uh, either been denied their right to a track of mortgage or had been on the wrong rate. Uh, and, they, and this has dragged on for a number of years. It only really came to a head in, in October when we had a number of individuals, September, October, when we had a number of individuals who had been affected by this actually appearing before Noroctus Committee. And that kind of led to public or uproar itself. It led to the Minister for Finance dragging mm. the banks in and the so Central is Bank it, to try Joe, is it the Oireachtas Committee, the finance, Oireachtas Finance Committee, that ultimately in the finish has embarrassed the banks into paying up this money and acknowledging these cases? Or is it the Central Bank? It's, it's not even necessarily Dominic. embarrassing the banks and the Central Bank. They forced the Minister's hand that this was a totally unpalatable political situation. He could not continue to, to oversee a, f- a financial system where these sort of cases were yeah. coming out all the time. Particularly so they were when the he's part of a minority government as well. Precisely. And you know, clearly the central bank was asleep at the wheel. We know that now Irish Nationwide was making, executives were making that case before a separate inquiry in the last week or two, back in 06, 05, 06, 07. So there was some fault to blame with the central mm. bank back then. However, the central bank has been a lot more proactive and activist in more recent years. And the banks have come kicking and screaming to the table. Mm. They've tried to, put on the brakes at every step along the way. No, we won't include them. No, they're not entitled. No, there's a limited compensation. It's interesting today that Pascal Dunne, who has also announced two new measures, one of which escapes me, but the other one is interesting, a doubling of the compensation that the Financial Services Ombudsman can award. That's interesting. It, it's merely... It's For really future is, cases. Yeah, but it's putting a slap on the bank saying, look, you either are going to play this right or we are going to hurt you somewhere along the line. Mind you, some of, some of these cases were turned down with the Ombudsman. Well, uh, well, the problem right here is, in, in, in a number of cases, and probably a vast majority of these cases, if they were actually tried before a court, they would come down in favour of the bank uh, mm. because the wording and the language was ambiguous enough that 
they could argue. And that's the problem with the banks. They've been bringing their lawyers up. They've all been lawyered up. Mm-hmm. They've been bringing their lawyers to the discussions with the central bank and saying, look, at, we could win this case. In, in, so it's in about enforcing legal rights rather than doing the right thing. Exactly. 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 And, yeah. and the ombudsman was the same. I mean, these very cases that AAB is now rolling over on were, at least in a couple of them, had actually been before the ombudsman and the ombudsman had sided with the bank. But it's been an industry-wide reluctance to really grapple with this yeah. and draw a line under the And case. actually, Joe, a lot of people are wondering how it was that practically every lender in the market did pretty much the same thing. Yeah, I mean, if you look at... Was there collusion? Uh, there's no evidence yet of collusion, but um, if you look at it, there was a, an incentive for the continuing banks. If you look at only 300 cases have turned up in the six banks' uh, lenders that were active in the market before the bubble burst. Uh, only 300 cases have come out of that. Um, that's because these banks had, or the, the owners, more more often they were owned by an overseas bank, had literally decided to look at, uh, draw a line under Ireland, put whatever provisions uh, they needed to do to deal get with out. the losses and just get the hell out of Dodge. Okay. Whereas the other banks had to, uh, had to look at um, returning themselves to to uh, profitability, they had to rebuild their income line again, and they looked at anything. And the tracker mortgages, mm. which were low yielding, these guys had a target on their back from the yeah. very outset. Very quickly, Joe, take us through some of the numbers of the other lenders. We talked yeah, about so AAB. Let's Bank, go to Bank of Ireland. Yeah, Bank of Ireland, uh, no movement since they came out and surprised. They everyone. had an extra six thousand just a few weeks ago. Back yeah. in November, permanent TSB, and they said six thousand permanent TSB again, only up nine cases to. Okay. Uh, they had theirs a couple of years ago. Well, Permanent TSB was one of the first uh, yeah. to come out. They had faced an enforcement action back KBC? in 2015. KBC is the second big mover. Um, it, uh, back in September, before when they were before the Rocks Committee, they couldn't even say how many cases mm. there were. They, they were a laggard, out, really. In the they story. came out in October and they said as many as 1,661 cases uh, uh, of, of, of... And uh, now? And now they're up to uh, an increase of 1,884 to 3,545. Oh. So oh. that's a big jump. And Second Ulster? biggest after... Ulster are sticking to the line that they um, that they've uh, with the and the figure that they put out uh, during the summer of three thousand five hundred. Yeah. But they are saying that they remain in com- conversations with the central bank. Uh, Cliff Taylor, what a lot of people perhaps forget is that uh, a, ch- a big, big chunk of that two hundred and ninety-seven million euro is taxpayer money. We own a majority stakes in permanent mm. TSB and an AIB, and we have a fourteen percent share of Bank of Ireland. Yeah, I mean it's a horrendous mess, really, and. Uh, I suppose, you know, PR advice or, or, or good business advice 101 is when you have a problem, deal with it as quickly as possible. Get all the facts out there. Don't let it drip out slowly over a period of time. But as Joe and Dominic were saying, it appears the banks were enthralled to their lawyers. Uh, there were bad decisions made at a high level in terms of dealing with this, in terms of being upfront about this, uh, and, and in terms of, you know, deciding where the line was drawn mm. in, in terms of, you know, who's included and who isn't. Uh, I, you know, I think, uh, as Dominic has said, the central bank has been much more active in the last while. Uh, it certainly okay. is now pushing the banks to try and deal with this. Uh, it might have done so a bit sooner. Uh, I think it did sit back for a while and, and, and let the banks kind of do, do their own examination. But there's no doubt now that, the, you know, the full sure. full throttle is down on this one. Cliff, let's talk about Ryanair. It's been a momentous year for Ryanair sure in many has. ways because we had the situation where they had rostering issues uh, a couple of months back yeah. and they had to cancel flights and a lot of people were worried whether they were going to fly and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and they, they've offered compensation, they offered extra pay to pilots, but they've sure. gone a whole way further now, a whole couple of steps yeah. beyond that by actually accepting now that they're going to recognise trade unions beginning with the pilots. 
Yeah, I mean, we had the uh, extraordinary situation of the rostering, uh, the rostering fiasco uh, in September when when twenty thousand flights, uh, you know, were, were eventually cancelled by the company, which was an extraordinary really bad communication. But uh, and time. certainly early early in that, after that broke, their communication was terrible. Uh, they tried to you know get out a small announcement saying, oh, there might be some problems coming mm. down the tracks, but don't worry about it too much. And it was you know at least a week before they started to deal with it uh, to deal mm. with it properly and to but get to grips with the communication is, terms. Is, is, it's a biggie, isn't it? Yeah, it, and, and now it looks like that rostering crisis was, I suppose, uh, the canary in, canary in the mine or whatever cliche you want to use. The, the company has a problem. It has a problem holding on to its pilots. Uh, and this has now pushed it into this uh, extraordinary move. I heard the uh, company's head of HR yesterday referring to it as crossing the Rubicon, and it certainly is. Uh, certainly for Maybe a... Maybe their chief people person. Just, sorry, Wilson, you're talking apologize, about? yes. <laughs> people person, yes. Excuse me for my old style, uh, my old style <laughs> terminology there. But, uh, you know, for, for a chief, for a company whose chief executive, Michael O'Leary, mm. said, you know, hell would freeze over before trade mm. unions would be recognised. This is... Uh, it's an extraordinary How much change. is it going to cost right now? Well, the company itself says 100 million. Um, okay. Analysts have put the figure a bit higher. We'd have to see, and it depends on exactly where, and was where this it falls. And was this a decision by the board or Michael O'Leary, do you think? And does this in many ways, you know, the series of events that we've seen over the last number of months yeah. and the way they've run away from Ryanair, yeah. uh, which normally is very much in control Absolutely. of its communication strategy, might this be the beginning of the end of Michael O'Leary's time in charge of the airline? Well, I suppose... Highly what, successful, I must be said. I mean, hugely successful and, uh, you know, the extraordinary success of Ryanair in, in pioneering the low fares model. We all, you know, we all love to give out about them, but we all we all fly with them uh, when, when, when we're going away, or at least some of the time. I think there's been some interesting things happened in the, in the last few weeks. I mean, even up to yesterday when, the, when Impact and IALPA went in to meet the company, uh, two senior executives of the company, Peter Bellew and... Uh, uh, the chief people person, as you say, Eddie, Eddie Wilson. Wilson. Yeah. Uh, and Eddie Wilson and Peter Bailey come out and said, look, cordial meeting, everything's great. We're going to get back to the unions in a few days. And the unions come out and say, look, we're, we're slightly disappointed here. The company said it's going to recognise the unions for collective bargaining purposes, but they wouldn't give us a bit of paper, you know, confirming this. Now, that just, it just... It just seems odd, uh, and it's part of kind of a pattern of oddness that's been going on over the last while, even in terms of dealing with this uh, union controversy over the over, over the last few weeks and the, and the threatened strike, uh, and suddenly backing down. and And you do wonder what the play is there between Michael O'Leary and the board, and Peter Bellew, who's recently returned to the company, uh, and how how Michael O'Leary will reconcile himself, I suppose, to this new environment. Now, we gave an, inter- an interview to Reuters saying, you know, we're going to work with this. This is going to help us grow in the next few years. Uh, we're going to grow our traffic. Uh, and, and I think analysts generally would say, look, Ryanair is on a growth path. Their last results were showed profits of 1.3 billion. The question is whether this is going to slow their growth. It's going to increase their costs. And it, Ryanair's traded on a big premium in the markets. It's traded on a premium over other airlines because of its low cost. The costs are extraordinarily low. And the question, I guess, is whether we're looking at the end of that really low cost, yeah. uh, really low cost approach. Dominic. There, there is also, to some degree, a very steep learning curve on both sides. Ryanair have simply never dealt with unions. They they may not have bothered to get the advice. And in fact, they talked about in advance of these talks, mm. they said they want to fast track them, which unions they, don't do. They have, but they haven't understood how you fast track that. You have to have the paperwork there. You have to have everything down in writing. They just assume, okay, our words are bond. Let's move on, boys. So next thing, mm. the unions for their part, this is a public service union impact. 
the, the IALPA, which is the, the part that's dealing with the Reiner, is a very, very small rump within a public service union impact. And in the public service, there's a very defined protocol about how these things are done. And impact is also going to have a very steep learning curve in how it deals mm. with a tyro like, like Reiner that still behaves like a startup airline even though it's one of the behemoths of the, of the industry. Yeah, I bet I had an interesting reaction when uh, Ryanair announced it was going to recognise unions and said, look, this is, a, this is a challenge for the unions as well. And as Dominic said, can the unions work with Ryanair for the kind of flexible dynamic model that has been kind of underlied the, underlied the, uh, the airline success? It'll certainly be interesting to watch, I think. Yes, it certainly will. One for 2018, I think. Okay, gentlemen, thank you for that. Uh, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll have the latest in our monthly business sports series with John Tracy, Chief Executive of Sport Ireland, joining us in studio. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes. And it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. For this part of the show, I'm joined in studio by Michael O'Keefe, Chief Executive of Tino PSG for our monthly business of sports slot. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Kieran. Uh, you'll shortly hear from John Tracy, Chief Executive of Sport Ireland, but we'll begin with a roundup of our business news from the sports world. And we're going to start with Barnsley of all places, uh, Michael. Yes. Um, the Championship Football Club in England, and it has just been taken over. Yes, by a Chinese billionaire <clears throat> of all things. Birthplace of our own Mick McCarthy as well, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that's right, and Michael Parkinson. Yes, there you are now. <laughs> so, made a good back four out of those two. Um, so, yeah, we spoke last time about Newcastle United and, and the potential takeover mm. Mike Ashley's club. A um, more glamorous Newcastle now. They're in the Premier League for a start. Yeah, a glamorous Bigger Newcastle, stadium. I'm not so sure. <laughs> but, you know, Barnsley, Newcastle, um, neither probably the, the Venice of, of, of Northern England. But um, we've this uh, consortium made up of Chinese billionaire Qian Li um, interestingly joined by the man best known for Moneyball which is a guy called Billy Bean who was played by Brad Pitt in the, in the movie of the same name Okay um, but I mean they're 20th in the league out of 24 and they're 16 points off the playoff spots you know, I mean, they're on the cusp of relegation rather than promotion to the Premier League. So what's the attraction of, of buying a, a kind of well, a it, well, backwards it, football <clears throat> club in England? Well, it's, it's it's probably cheaper than going in, in in the Premier League. Like, he's he's getting the club for a report of £10 million. So, you know, you mm. look at some of the other clubs he's been linked to, like a Brentford, Hull City, Middlesbrough, etc. So he also owns Nice in the in the French League 1. So probably taking this with a view to a long-term strategy of getting them up to the Premier League. Because yeah. it's interesting, you mentioned that we spoke about uh, Newcastle the last time, and Amanda Stavely, who's interested in buying Newcastle. Apparently they've hit a bit of a concern about Newcastle potentially getting relegated. They've had a bad uh, run of form now and it's not beyond the realms of possibility that they could go down back to the Championship. Yeah. And, and, it, and it reduces the value of Oh, absolutely. Of the well, it it reduces it hugely, in particular in the, the, the TV income that dries up. But it, I think Newcastle are in that horrible spot that if they don't get the deal done quickly, they're going to miss the January transfer window. They miss the January transfer window. The left of the manager with a team is probably not fit for purpose okay. and they could get relegated and then the deal goes goes belly up so or gets sold at a, at a far at a far cheaper rate. 
Okay. Um, well, let's stick with uh, broadcast and sports rights. Uh, uh, Sky and BT have signed a deal to sell their channels on each other's platforms. What's the importance of the story? Yeah, so uh, again, this huge trend that we're seeing around some of the big digital giants and uh, digital broadcasters buying up sports rights. And what we see here is Sky and BT, who traditionally would have been rivals in the in mm. the sports broadcasting space, uh, joining together so that BT will now supply its, its sports channels to Sky. Um, so you can now... Um, and and Sky will now supply to BT. So this is supply to Ireland as well. Uh, BT is available to yeah, our sports. Yes, and, and, and BT will be able to sell Sky's now TV service, which includes the Sky Sports, Sky Cinema, Sky Atlantic, etc., to its customers. Um, probably an alliance of convenience. If you look at what's going on in the world around us, so you've you know as the likes of Amazon, Facebook, you know, in soccer and surfing and all these other sports. So more and more, you know, it was a case of dual screening with social media and sports broadcasters. Now we're seeing more and more of these digital platforms buying up sports rights. So BT and Sky, it's probably a, a, a defensive um, mechanism. Right. OK. Uh, good news for viewers or no? I, I, I think it's good news. Yeah, the only thing when you've got so many uh, confused and quite diverse sports rights landscape, you don't want multiple platforms to watch your sports. So I think what we might see is a bit more consolidation and probably better for the consumer in the long run. All right. Let's talk about sponsorships. Uh, Bitcoin, God help us, uh, <laughs> are sponsoring a Danish hockey team. There's a champagne partner for Atletico Bilbao, champagne socialist perhaps, uh, and a, a new watch partnership for Sevilla, uh, which uh, maybe is good news for the for the players. Yeah, so I suppose this is, you get these kind of cat up a tree end of year sponsorship deals that uh, that we that, that we that we see, and we the Bitcoin one is is quite interesting actually, um, and and Bitcoin raising its head above the parapet for the first time in this kind of this kind of um, uh, capacity. So they're going in an ice hockey stadium in um, Denmark. Um, not alone will they be the naming rights of the become the Bitcoin arena. You'll be able to use the crypto financial currency within the stadium, and also one of their players will be paid in Bitcoin. So uh, quite well, they'd want to be quite rich, given that Bitcoin is trading around nineteen thousand dollars. I think <laughs> so, you'd want to be quite a rich fan, wouldn't you, to, uh, to well, have one on you? Well, well, well that's it. So um, I you don't should know, be able to buy a lot uh, of hot dogs. With it. You could probably get buckets of hot, probably get your own hot dog stand. I'd say for a Bitcoin, but um, yeah, just interesting. I think in terms of this kind of end of year stuff and Atletico Bilbao, obviously going with their new champagne champagne basques right and tell us about these watches uh, for Sevilla well they're just they got sponsored by a watch company (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) well we'll keep our eye on that one (laughs) not the biggest story of the year Kieran. that's that's this month's roundup from the world of sport So, John Tracy, Chief Executive of Sport Ireland, welcome to Inside Business. Um, just for the uninitiated, if you like, you might just explain to us the business model that lies behind Sport Ireland or the Irish Sports Council as it used to be. Yeah, well, Sport Ireland is is established under an act and uh, new act came in where we were amalgamated with the, with the campus. So we have the National Sports Campus, campus in Abbottstown. In Abbottstown, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we have various functions. Uh, so if I... We have one regulatory function, which is anti-doping, uh, which you hear quite a lot about. Sure, uh, That's one aspect. We have a, a function in, in relation to high performance and improving our standards around high performance. Uh, so that's... Across that's how it. many sports? Uh, we we kind of maybe around 15 sports or so. Okay. Uh, and we have an institute of sport that comes in and delivers the services 
tour athletes. And that was a big piece that we did um, maybe five or six years ago is is making sure we had the best physios, the best medic, medical people, the best strength and conditioning. And they're all out in, in, in the National Sports Campus uh, at the Institute of Sport. And we have dietitians there and, and we have a teaching kitchen. And, you know, we have the sports science where they can get uh, tested as well. So we have, it, we have it all there. And it is really kind of an environment for our high-performance people. So it's only high-performance mm. people that come into that. So that's our high-performance. And then we have... Obviously, the funding that goes into the high-performance programs of our NGBs, which are led by performance directors and and, and high-performance coaches, and that goes there. And maybe around, in total, for the governing bodies, about eight million goes into those programs for high-performance. But there, we, and we fund them based on achievements at the, at the world level. We've had maybe around seventy-two medals this year, right across the, the board at world. Up or down on the previous year? Uh, up. It's still going up. Yeah, and I, I suppose that's that's a that's that's a good piece. But I suppose the critical piece in terms of high performance is that, like we. Um, we haven't had any increase in terms of the funding in high performance since about 2007, 2008. So uh, around the time of the crash. Right, around the time of the crash. And I, I suppose we're losing a little bit of ground in terms of that investment. And high performance is expensive. Uh, no matter where you go in the world, it's expensive. You need to be, have the best people walking. Mm. If you're traveling, whatever, it's all it all adds up very quickly. But we do, we do uh, a good job and our athletes are well taken care of. And the funding goes directly to the athletes as well as as part of a carding scheme. So that's all part sure. of that. Yeah. And what's your overall budget? Our overall budget is is in, on current. It's about forty eight million. Okay. And how many staff would you have? We'd have about 40, 40 staff. Okay. And what kind of staff are are they? We have. Um, what skills do they have? We have people that we have administrators. Obviously, that we have to make sure we we roll out the funding fairly well. We then have people that work with, with our governing bodies of sports, so they need to have a very good knowledge of high performance. They need to have a very good knowledge of, of, our, of our governing bodies. We have people that obviously know a lot about corporate governance, and we have we have a training unit then that basically trains the volunteers. It's organisation development, and that's a H- HR, and so it's really HR, corporate governance, that type of thing. And then we have anti-doping people, which are really kind of specialists, uh, and, and that's, that's a critical piece. Uh, and then we have we have a participation unit as well, which is hugely important in terms of the health of the nation. Uh, and uh, we come in and support anything to do with physical activity uh, we, we, through, sure. through our and national governing bodies and through our local sports partnerships at local level. And how much is spent on anti-doping every year? Anti-doping is about two million a year. Two million. Yeah. And it's not just sort of cycling, athletics, the kind of sports that people know about in terms of doping. It's also GA and uh, yeah, a variety is, yeah. of other it is, yeah. And But again, we're probably only testing in about 14 or 15 sports based on, you know, where they are in terms of high performance uh, and the, the level of risk. So, uh, again, we would be the, the most testing we go into athletics or cycling, those type of sports which are high risk. Uh, testing GA, obviously rugby as well, boxing, any of those high Olympic sports. And we will test if we have people at the highest level at international sport, we ensure that we test those. And John, just, <clears throat> just from, from my own perspective here, you, you're such a wide remit between infrastructure, participation, high performance. And we haven't talked about the national sport. Or that, and, and the campus and everything yeah. else in between, and I suppose with a with a with a finite budget, like how do you balance the need between and two very different needs between giving our high performance athletes as much funding and as much support as possible, and this explosion in participation and the health of the nation because they are two very different 
programs and and two very different um, priorities. Yeah, well, we, yeah, I suppose we were under pressure on the high performance side, but on the participation side, uh, through the National Physical Activity Plan, some extra funding has come to us through Dormant Account Funding and from Healthy Ireland, and that's probably an extra five million that's coming in. Uh, came in last year and came in. It'll come in again in 2018, and that effectively goes to get Ireland walking, get Ireland swimming, get Ireland running, all those kind of kind of programs. Uh, the, the the cycle event that we have in Dublin every year, where we have we have 5,000 people out in September, the European Week of Sport, which is getting activities right around the country, all those type of things. Local sports partnerships at local level, delivering uh, sports hubs at local areas where collectively clubs coming together to support. Uh, sport in the community, all those type of things that are that are helping to develop this kind of physical activity mentality in, right across around the country. So that's an extra spend that we've we've had uh, over the last couple of years. That has gone a long way, and it's mm. it's, it's money very very well spent and much appreciated. Uh, so it is it is probably, and I, this is one of the pieces that I've really kind of seen in recent times. Uh, from I, I I was on the Healthy Ireland Advisory Group, which was chaired by Keith Keith Wood, and we've seen a lot of progress made in that f- three years since that was established. And because I suppose in the past you would have been talking about governments coming in and supporting physical activity and trying to fight this obesity piece, uh, what you have now is is various government departments putting steps in place to ensure that the, the nation is getting physically active and creating an environment that kind of lends itself to physical mm-hmm. activity. Mm-hmm. Now, well, they are talking about putting PE on the leaving circuit. That, was, that, was, that was, for <coughs> me, was a huge step, mm-hmm. absolute huge step, because I, I, I didn't think, actually, the Department of Education would, go, would actually do it. And uh, it, it actually is absolutely huge, mm-hmm. because it is basically saying, OK, we're going to pilot in 60 schools, mm-hmm. we're going to roll it out, and really and truly... What we've been trying to get the point across to parents, all the parents right around the country, is that is that physical activity is as important as as people's uh, reading and writing and math and whatever they're doing or chemistry or whatever. Mm. These are life skills, mm. and they can carry these life skills all the way through. And you know, te- teaching these kids how to cook for themselves, what they should be eating, all that type is hugely, yeah. hugely important. Uh, that's this type of education that our kids need to have in secondary school. And, well, and you, I, heard, I heard a Vox uh, pop with some secondary uh, schoolboys and you were asked about whether they would take PE if it was on the Leaving Cert curriculum at the moment and a couple of them said, oh, absolutely, definitely, there should be some handy points. Uh, which but I'm, <laughs> I'm sure, not sure, I'm not sure that meets I'm the objective sure, of the Department I, of Education. No, and I'm not sure it would be that easy either, yeah. right? And uh, obviously if they're physically active and they're a sports person, it would, it would obviously help. But it's a critical step and it's a critical step in terms of getting into the mind of parents that this is really important and I think that's a piece. I'd love to see it in the inter- junior cert uh, but I'd really love to see more physical education in primary schools and that really is a critical piece. If we're going to change this, we need to get it into primary schools so they learn those skills. Uh, now, a lot of the NGBs, particularly Gaelic and uh, particularly, mm. is strong in the primary schools yeah. and, they, and they teach those skids, uh, skills. But what I would always be saying is this, is we, we, we don't want to get to a situation where if you're, you're picked out because you're good at a mm. sport, it, it is at that age, sport should be for everyone, irrespective of ability. Right. And if you, and there's a sport there for everyone. So they are, they're the type of things that we need to explore. But certainly in over the last five years, the governing bodies of sport have got a lot better 
in ensuring, well, it's not all about high performance. It's not all about the best kids. It is making sure that the that the kids are are allowed in. They're and active. Yeah. They're active and what have you. So that's that's a big piece. And what you've actually seen in a lot of these sports in recent times is a huge growth of membership in athletics, in gymnastics, right across the board. You see uh, kids coming in, joining clubs, and a lot of these clubs are actually full so that's that's that is really good news and, and just john on on just one question around um funding and and i suppose the the primary source of funding being uh, government and, and as well for 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 the ngbs that you support and work with um do you think we've come to a time now where some of the ngbs in particular will need to diversify their their funding sources in order to protect against this kind of up down cycle of of government funding and looking more at different commercial strategies, different commercial structures, commercial sponsorship, philanthropy. And I know some of them have gone a long way on this journey, but I think for some there's probably a bit of a journey to to, yeah, to travel. And I suppose that's one of the pieces around the governing body sector is that some are very well developed and some less developed. Uh, and that's the kind of challenge that we're we're bringing to them in terms of corporate governance and uh, we do a lot of training in corporate governance and uh, we've signed up to the community and voluntary code and we're basically saying to all the governing bodies uh, based on your size we need everyone signed up by 2019 and 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 then comply or explain it's it's all that type of thing and pushing that corporate governance piece uh, so we've we've done a lot of work in that particular area having the right speakers and when uh, we, we have as I said, we have a unit then that that advises the governing bodies as well, and so we have we have a plethora of programs that that lend itself, and we have tools that they can use as well. So they're all the the type of things that we do. So what we're basically tr- saying to the governing bodies is that look, if if you're trying to get people to invest, you need to make sure you have good corporate governance in place, that mm-hmm. you have a robust organisation in place, and that's been an issue for a lot of these bodies. Hasn't yeah, it? it is an issue for because they don't have the resources, mm-hmm. and, and and that's that's a critical piece. So. So I, I think that's that goes a long way. And if someone go, is going to invest in those organisations, they need to be clear in the minds that they're, they're well run. And that's and that has been a huge shift as well over the last five or six years. Because now what we're seeing is that we're seeing stronger governing bodies. We're seeing we're seeing uh, p, uh, organisations that are, that, are, that are run well. Now that won't say that's not saying we'll have one or two NGBs every year that will get into some kind of issue, that have some kind of issues. And we help support and support them in terms of working their way through those issues. Uh, Because if you're dealing with with 50 or 60, well, 65 voluntary organisations, you're going to have issues that will arise all the time. So it's a matter of of putting structures Mm. in place so those issues don't arise. John, I just wonder, taxpayers might say, it's a good 50 million is is your budget. It's all taxpayer funded, essentially. It it? is, yeah. I I suppose taxpayers might sort of wonder whether they're getting bang for their buck. And I'm not sure how you you assess that. Well, we assess it through um, the number of medals won and we set targets with the Mm. governing bodies of sport. In the anti-doping, we, we obviously want to carry out thousands of tests. Our obviously goal is that anyone that competes is competing clean, mm-hmm. and we do everything that we possibly can to ensure that happens. Right, and that's that's our mantra. I think everyone that that know that knows anything about sure. our anti-doping program, and then on the participation side, what, what we're trying to do is grow the membership yeah. of the governing bodies, 
grow the people. No and obviously that side is, is working. But people might look at it. I mean, athletics is a, you know, it's a big sport in the yeah. Olympics, isn't it? People really tune into that yeah. uh, every four years. And yeah. you won a silver medal in the marathon uh, in 84. Yeah. Remember Eamon Coughlin, yeah. fourth in two Olympics, and yeah. Sonia O'Sullivan won a silver medal and she had a bit of heartbreak herself in yeah. other Olympic finals. But really, we don't have we don't have very many Irish athletes at an elite level in athletics. And we don't go to very many Olympics now sort of expecting yeah. an Irish athlete even to reach a final, never mind yeah. uh, win a medal. Yeah. So... How do we change that? Or is that something we just have to accept? Uh, well, I, 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 if you look at it just as athletics in the Olympic Games, uh, you have to look wider than that. And w- what we did a number of years ago was look, identify the sports that we actually could compete at the, at the world level. And, and what emerged out of that was sailing, was rowing, was, was equestrian sports. And if you look at, the, at our tradition, we have a long tradition. We have the resources, which is water, we're an island, so we're playing to playing to our strengths. And we love our horses. And we have our horses. <laughs> yeah. So now, if you look at a sport like athletics, uh, for one second, it's a global sport. It is really a, truly a global sport. Every country in the world uh, competes in track and field. So the best we can ever do in track and field is maybe have two or three that are at world level, and that's that would be phenomenal if we got to that. Uh, and that's. So we, but we can compete in European Championships. We can win uh, win win medals at European Championship level, and we can aspire. And if you look back at our history, we have people that come through every now and then. Now, I, I would also say, and and this is definitely a factor, is that is that you know drugs in athletics, uh, particularly and in cycling, has been a huge issue. I think certainly the IWF have come to terms with a lot quicker than a lot of other sports and they have a very good uh, integrity unit set up and led by David Howman uh, who was the chief executive of WADA at one particular stage. So I think Seb Coe when he came in he, he grasped that nettle and, and made sure that he set up a, a, a robust structure to, to, but that's and I think that really did affect a lot of our athletes. They were, say, we've had some positive tests as well. Yeah, I mean, we there have, have been some Irish athletes. Yeah, we well. have, we have, and and if we if we're suspicious of an Irish athlete, uh, we 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 target them, and we and and we don't make any ex, we don't make any apology for targeting people. Uh, but really and truly, I think some of the some of the other countries haven't been as robust as we have been, and uh, and that's an issue. Mm. But I, I so. And we've had a lot of Irish athletes in the past that have been squeezed out of finals, been squeezed out of semi-finals, and been squeezed out of medal, medal of medals by by mm. people. Do you that feel have you lost out on a on a medal or a placing as a result of uh, some athlete being dropped up ahead of you? Well, I, I I would say there is no doubt about it. In my career, I could name one or two races that I basically said these lads were in a different stratosphere to myself, and whether I had I had beaten them maybe two weeks previously. Uh, when I went to this major championships, I didn't recognise them. They were so good. John, just on a, on a wider point, um, and I know in- infrastructure comes under your remit now, and we have some fantastic infrastructure with Abbottstown and Crow Park and the Aviva. But the National Sports Campus. The National Sports Campus. <laughs> Sorry, John. Um, let's rewind. Um, so, but just on 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 the, the, the one of the, the I suppose deep disappointments of last year was Rugby Twenty Three, mm. and the major finding there seemed to be around infrastructure. Um, what's your take on that, and in terms of Ireland's ability as a sport loving nation to host? major international tournaments and, and, and competitions? Well, I have no doubt in my mind that if we had got 2023 uh, World Cup, we would have done a fantastic job. I have no doubt about it whatsoever, right? And any infrastructure issues that we had would have been sorted, right? And the government were clearly committed to doing that. Uh, and uh, we, because of our success at the Special Olympics, because 
it was really a kind of a turning point for us. We had uh, we had a women's World Cup. Now I know much smaller event yeah, that was yeah. ran in the summertime, hugely successful, hugely successful and well organised. And what you have is you have people that volunteer for these and they come with a passion. Mm. And this is always when I go anywhere in the world, that's the first thing I recognise. And what I always actually do remember all the Olympic Games I've been to, I remember Sydney and I remember London for for the volunteers mm. and the passion Atmosphere. and the joy mm. they brought. You know, it was really a joyful experience to go to those games, right? I contrast that with Rio, which I thought was a disaster, but it wasn't fun. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. And the volunteers play a key role around all that. And I think Ireland would have been a fantastic country to host a, a Rugby World Cup. Now, what we say as well is this, OK, we were unsuccessful this time around. Mm. But I think what we'll do is we, we have to dust ourselves off and say, listen, we have to go for this again. Yeah. Like we, we had, we bid for the 2017 European Cross Country Championship. We didn't get it. Uh, Athletics Ireland are going to dust themselves down and bid again. Yeah. And that's, you know, like if we feel we have the capability to do this and we can do a good job, I think we should go for it again without a shadow of a doubt. Although I see Australia, I think Australia are going to go for 2027. Haven't they pitched a hat into the ring already? We don't know if America are going to go for it. So we're going to be up against it <clears> no <throat> matter when but, we go for it. But I, I, I think if we're, if we're going to go up against it, right, we, we put our best for, for forward. But there's no... There's no shame in not getting it. Do you know what I'm saying? You have to put your best foot forward. And a lot of these major championships, what you have to do is, is do it once, twice, and yeah. three times. They'll eventually give it to you, yeah. right? And I know... <laughs> it's Mickey go away. <laughs> yeah, right, it's persistence. But I know we will do a, a fabulous job. There's, there's no doubt about it. John, just one, one other question. Like you, you, you've many stakeholders, and I suppose when it comes to high performance, you've got the NGBs, but you also have the OCI when it comes to Olympic time. And, and just that, that question around... I suppose the well-publicised um, difficulties and transition that organisation has been through, and just to take your view on that new strategic plan that was released, and on and your view of where the OCI is going. Well, the, the OCI has transformed itself in a very, very short period of time. They've implemented all the Deloitte report. Uh, they're they they're now basically uh, have leaders within the organisation. Uh, they've. As I said, they've outlined the strategic plan, and and a big part of that strategic plan is is to raise corporate funding, and um, like they have, the Olympic Council will have the most marketable product in the world, which is the five rings. It is incredible, and I think I think that is that is untapped potential in Ireland, and I I think uh, that's one of their strategic goals is to raise raise uh, income for the high performance sport. They. And in a very short period of time as well, they're now working in partnership uh, with us and we're forging a relationship in terms of a continued continuation of, ser- of, of services for our, our elite athletes when they go to the Olympic Games. And, and that's, a, that's a big piece. Uh, so that if you're before the Olympic Games, you make sure you have the right people looking after you and those people can look after you during the Olympic Games as well. So that, that piece is really, really important. They're focused on athletes and they're focused on, 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 on their parents and really any of the issues that arose in the past mm-hmm. should never arise again. And these are the kind of pieces that the Irish Olympic uh, IOC are putting in place very quickly and they've really good leadership in terms of Sarah Keane mm. and she's done a very short, uh, done a lot of work in a very, yeah. very short period of time. But that Hickey issue is going to be, it's going to be around for a while yet, isn't it? Um, uh, that issue will, 
will will go on and uh, it'll resolve itself in due course and uh, let it but I think what we need to do is concentrate on on the Olympic Council of Ireland now in terms of how that runs uh, and make sure that we have really very well prepared uh, people yeah. athletes for Tokyo okay. John in, in, in the realm of Olympics well just, just quickly on this one around, around Russia and the ban from the Olympics what's what's your take on that and you know, in terms of the, the, the action that's been taken? Well, uh, the IOC blinked the, prior to Rio uh, and they let the, the Russian athletes compete, uh, which I think was a huge mistake. And I think they lost a lot of credibility with uh, the, the athletes throughout the world because of that. Uh, and that's, that's a huge factor. Uh, we welcomed the decision they made recently. And they, they made that on the back of, uh, of the McLaren report, which mm-hmm. to me, if you're ready for cover to cover, it basically exposed uh, a country for totally and utterly manipulating anti-doping uh, systems and t- to enable their athletes to cheat right during the competition, right? That was a critical piece uh, and that they were, they'd be guaranteed a clean, clean results in terms of, uh, of anti-doping. So I think for that, uh, the IOC now have, have made the right decision. Uh, we obviously will, however they're going to apply to leave uh, the, uh, the Russian athletes into, to source, uh, into, into Korea, uh, into the uh, uh, Winter Olympics, Winter Olympics. They, they will set up criteria and hopefully they'll be robustly monitored by an anti-doping mm. committee that, that would say yeah or nay. Okay. Finally, John, you've been in, in charge now of uh, what the Sports Council and now Sport Ireland for, I think, nearly uh, 20 decades. People of my generation are a bit decades, older. Uh, 20, two decades, I beg your pardon. <laughs> two, two decades, 20 years. Uh, people of my generation and a bit older, thank you, Mick, um, will uh, will remember you as twice uh, World Cross Country Champion, as an Olympic silver medalist, as a very fine uh, mar- marathoner uh, and so forth. And you successfully made that transition to yeah. the boardroom. Just wondering, I think you've committed to the next Olympic cycle. Yeah. Uh, and then you plan to jump off the horse, as, do, yeah. as it were. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you're in your 60s now so what's 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 next for John Tracy uh, I am hugely involved with Concern uh, worldwide and I've been on the board there for uh, about 8 years and I will continue to do that I'm on the board of the US as well they're a fantastic organisation uh, and um, a fantastic humanitarian organisation that, that work in 27 countries around the world and when you're looking at the people that they're reaching out and helping uh, these are people that have actually nothing. The clothes on the back is all they have, right? And what they're doing is looking after them, making sure they have they have clean water, right hygiene, medical support, uh, and shelter. Uh, so they do really a huge amount of work in the, in the poorest countries in the world. And that's the concern mantra, is they only want to work uh, where there's extreme poverty. And uh, we in the board are honoured to work with a fantastic executive. They do fantastic work uh, and to oversee that work. So that's something that I, I obviously will continue with. Uh, for. I'm curious, do you still run? I still run, yeah. yeah I Go still, on, how many miles a week? Uh, well, three times a week, maybe five miles. And I cycle as well. And I, I golf. I golf once a week, and if I can on a Saturday, if I can. All right, so you should have a bit more time for, for the golf in the years yeah, ahead, maybe. Yeah, 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 <laughs> All right. exactly, exactly. John Tracy, Chief Executive of Sport Ireland, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, John. 
Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Cliff Taylor, Mark Paul, Joe Brennan, Laura Slattery, Dominic Coyle, John Tracy and Michael O'Keefe. Declan Conlon produced the show with Rob O'Sullivan and JJ Vernon as sound engineers. Dan O'Neill of Teneo PSG assisted with research. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. Our next show will be available for download on December 27th when we'll be looking at some of the challenges and opportunities that will face Ireland in 2018. Make sure to tune in. All that's left is for me to wish you all a very happy and peaceful Christmas. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.